Well, here's what we're doing. We're starting a new series, and the series is called Killing Sin. And if there's one uh, motto or phrase or truth I want you to be mindful of, it comes from the Puritan theologian John Owen, and it's this. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Or if you kind of want to up it a little bit, be killing sin, or sin be killing you. So you can kind of get into it, okay? That's the truth of what we're looking at. This series is intended to help you deal a death blow to your besetting sin, to your habitual sin. We want to kill all sin, but it's the habitual sin that drags us down and and can literally destroy our life. And I pray that in the weeks to come, you're going to have gospel strategies that are life-giving to your heart and death-dealing to your sin and to my sin as well. And why is that? Because sin is serious. Sin is deadly. And sin is deadly serious. Listen to James. But each one has been tempted when he's carried away, enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. The bottom line is this. Sin is deadly, and we should be deadly serious about killing it in our lives. This is going to be a hard series in some ways. If you come with a teachable spirit, the Holy Spirit is going to reveal sin in your life. And that's never comfortable, but it's always beneficial if we will seek to kill it. Because, listen, sin is a serial killer. It is constantly seeking to kill us. And so this series is designed to help you kill it before it kills you. And this isn't something that John Owen, the Puritan, came up with. Look in your Bibles or also in your notes there, Romans 8, 12 through 14. Here's what Paul said. So then, brethren, we're under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, For if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. You must die. Sin is deadly. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. What's the implication? That if you're a son of God, you do You kill sin. And if you're not killing sin and you're living in the flesh, you are dead. Dead to Christ, dead to your sin. So the encouraging thing about this series, it'll be hard because it's going to expose sin. It's going to be encouraging because it'll give assurance of salvation as you see your sin, kill it, repent of it, and choose to live closer and more like Christ. And I threw in there Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, because it's fascinating. This is kind of a a theme verse of this series as well. It connects the ascension that we've spent 13 weeks studying to our battle against sin. So Christ is up there. We're battling down here, but there's a connection 
between His ascension and our killing of sin. Look at Hebrews 12, 1 through, 1 through 2. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. It surrounds us. It trips us up. We're running in sin. And in the King James, it says the sin that besets us. And that's where we get the idea of besetting sin. The idea is habitual sin. It's sin that is always entangling and tripping us up. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How do we do that? Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of the faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So we look at the exalted Jesus, remembering that in his humiliation he battled sin, faced temptation, all without ever sinning, went to the cross, died for our sin, rose again, seated victoriously, and because he is the author and the pioneer and the finisher of our faith, you too can be victorious over sin. And so we want to break the downward spiral of habitual sin. See if you can relate to this. We enjoy a forbidden pleasure. We know it's wrong. We're tempted. We know and we give in. Then we feel guilty. And then we determine, I'm never going to do that again. Then we take pride in a brief moment of self-control. Or we think, oh, well, that's done. Okay, I determined not to do it again. It's over. It seems to be gone. And then we fall once again. And then slowly... Over time, we seek, sink into the despair of repeated defeat. Can you relate to that to some aspect in your life? I guarantee you that every person here, including myself, all of us here, have some sin that we have gone and maybe right now and probably right now are in this cycle. And the saddest thing of all is we're going to see Satan is a deceiver. We may, not even be know, we may not even know we're way down on this spiral, and we may not even know it. And we may not even care. Now, how do people respond when they're caught in this downward spiral? Well, they begin to excuse themselves because they feel like they can't escape. I'm only human. After all, we're not supposed to, only Jesus is really sinless. We make excuses. Then we become pessimistic. Why try anymore? I've battled this and I've battled this and I just that can't do it. And then we become defensive or defiant. No one wants to help me. No one cares. No one, you know, if only this. We begin to blame shift. And say, the reason I'm in this is because of my parents, my upbringing, my, my present situation, my spouse, my, my whatever it is, my culture. And then we begin to see ourselves as victims. I can't help myself. So before we do anything more this morning, before we go farther in this series... I want each of you to think through those questions on the right hand of your page. I want you to ask, 
What is your habitual sin? What is your sin that you keep facing and failing and trying to overcome? And then check where you are in your response to that. Check where you are in your response. If you don't know where you're at, you don't know where you need to go. And so this is, this is why I have this at the beginning of this whole series. Now, how should Christians respond? What's the right response? Obviously, these are wrong. So what's the right response? The right response is this, that in Christ, we begin to kill our sinful habits and replace them with godly ones. Listen, the battle against sin is a replacement process. If you just get focused on the sin, you're looking at the wrong things. We're supposed to fix our eyes on who? On the ascended Christ, right? But the idea is I not only want to stop this, I want to replace it with that which is better. And so hopefully through the weeks to come, you you will be able to do that. So here's the illustration. We should be like the inhabitants of a walled city. And the enemy keeps attacking at one place, one place. Well, what's the thing to do? It's to go to that one place and strengthen the wall in that one area. We're to be like the Israelites in the book of Nehemiah. They were building the wall and the enemy would be attacking in different places. And the, the people of Israel would be at the wall with a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other. If you go to the bookstore up there at uh, Midwestern, it's sword and trowel based on Spurgeon's newsletter that was called the sword and trowel. Why? Because we should be warring against the devil and building up our defenses. That's how we should go through life. So every morning you want to wake up with a sword and a trowel, a spade, a shovel. You want to rebuild while you war. And you know what's interesting about Nehemiah as well? Each family was assigned a section of the wall. And so each family had that responsibility. And that's the thing about your life. I can't battle your sins for you. You can't battle mine. We can pray for one another. We can encourage one another. But before the Lord, you have a responsibility to strengthen the walls and the defenses and to kill the sin in your life. And I have the same responsibility. Listen, is it possible to say no to habitual sin when you feel like saying yes? The Bible has a resounding Yes, you can. Yes, you can. You can break habitual sin. You can kill sin. In fact, we have an obligation to do so. So this morning, I want to ask and answer two questions, and they're related. Why so much temptation? Why do we have so much temptation? And then secondly, why does God allow it? Okay, why does God allow so much temptation? And listen, this is where the battle begins to be won or fought, is how you think about your sin. So let's take a look. Why is there so much temptation in our lives? Well, first of all, you now have an adversary, the devil. Before you were born again, 
There's only two families, the devil's family and God's family. You're born into the devil's family by your natural birth. You're born into God's family by your supernatural being born again. And guess what? As long as you're in Satan's family, you're on his side. You're a part of his kingdom. But the second you are transferred into the kingdom of Christ by the new birth... You have a target on your back as you leave from his kingdom going into Christ's kingdom. You now have an adversary. So turn your Bibles to 1 Peter 5. 1 Peter 5, 8 through 9, which kind of sums up, is the main verse of this point. And it's a great verse to meditate on and reflect on. 1 Peter 5, 8 through 9. Here's what it says. Be sober. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Why? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experience of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. We just prayed about the women of Mozambique. We just talked about their temptations, how the prowling lion wants to destroy their livelihood, their marriages, their families. Well, guess what? Sin probably, you know, that's not a consequence of following Christ. That's not a temptation we have. And we need to remember that, that people with greater stakes are being victorious. We can do the same. You know what's interesting uh, in getting ready for this lesson? I've had to look at all these verses. We're going to see them in a moment. These verses about the devil. And you know what's interesting that I notice in, in looking them all up is that every time the devil is mentioned, and at least the verses that I looked up in the New Testament, there's always a, a, a message of hope in that. So look at 1 Peter again. It says, look, you've got an adversary, a prowling, roaring, hungry lion. And then it says, but resist him. Even as great as the devil is, there is always hope. And that's kind of consistent with these verses that we're going to look at. So let's look at the names of the devil. They reveal his character and his role in temptation. So this is like a, an overview of who the devil is that we have to deal with. First of all, he is an adversary who opposes God's person, God's people, and God's purposes. He's an enemy of God. And if you're on God's team, he's an enemy of you. Satan means Adversary, the Greek satanas, is means adversary. That's why radical Muslims call America the great Satan. What does that mean? The great adversary. And that's why how I always remember. Okay, what what it was Satan and devil? Satan means adversary because America is the great Satan, the great adversary. That's the idea. In scripture, he's pictured as a fiery warring dragon. And he's pictured as a prowling, hungry lion. Right now in our neighborhood, we have a neighborhood cat, uh, which I have grown to love. Now, me loving a cat, I don't think I would ever say that, right, Sarah? Ever, ever. But two things, we don't own him. 
our owner and she's not in our house. And so it's a wonderful thing. We just give her milk and then she comes and we pet her and she disappears. But what's fascinating is being around this cat out on our deck is how she prowls. There's some, our neighbor next door has hostas around his big oak tree. And this cat prowls in under those hostas, disappears into the the jungle of the hostas, and is just waiting there at the base of the tree for some poor squirrel to come down and without without any knowledge, woof! And, and now, now our neighbors two house down own the, or claim the cat, right? So when Nala uh, catches anything from the Lion King, when Nala catches anything, she brings her prey down to their house. I wish he'd, she'd bring it to our I'd love to see this. But she catches squirrels. She catches uh, birds. She catches moles. Not enough moles. I wish she'd catch more. But... It's fascinating to watch. And I just think of those unsuspecting squirrels. That's what you're supposed to picture. Satan is laying in wait under your hostas, ready to pounce on you. And you have no clue it's coming. Secondly, he's a tempter. The adversary is the tempter who tempts us to take the bait and choose to be caught. So he doesn't always prowl like a lion. Sometimes he's like a fisherman that has a lure and a bait, and he wraps up sin with something that's enticing, and you come to that, and he tempts you to take the bait, bite on it, and then he yanks the hook, and you're caught. In 1 Thessalonians 3, 5, Paul says this, For this reason... When I could endure it no longer, you Thessalonians, I also sent to find out about your faith for fear that the tempter might have tempted you. Now, we read that and go, yeah, 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 yada, 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 move right on. No, the Apostle Paul believed the devil was real and he was a tempter and he could tempt a whole church to do that which was not godly, and even tempt them to reject their faith in Christ. The tempter might have tempted you. In fact, in Matthew 4, 3, it says this, The tempter came and said to Jesus, The tempter tempted Jesus. That's what he does. He points to things. He gets you focused on things to say, Wouldn't that be good? In this case, he he had three temptations, but... He says, if you are the son of God, command these stones to be bread. See these, see these stones? Aren't you 40 days of fasting? Aren't you hungry? Don't those stones look like Middle Eastern bread baked in ovens? Ah, drooling, looking. Look how tasty that is. Just turn them into stones and violate God's will for your life as Messiah. That's what he does. Listen. Let me warn you about some bad theology. It is bad theology to say the devil made me do it. The devil never makes you do it. He tempts you to do it. And you and I choose to give in to that temptation. So anytime we're tempted, we don't say the devil's making me do this. No, he's tempting me and I'm offered a choice. And how does he tempt us? Number three 
He is the deceiver. He's the deceiver who disguises himself in his, dis- in his temptations. Listen to 2 Corinthians 11.3. Paul says to the Corinthians, he's talking, listen, Paul is talking to New Testament churches all the time about the devil. Do we talk to one another about the devil? Do we warn each other about the devil? Do we look and see that we have an enemy? Listen, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and the purity of devotion to Christ. Then he says down in verse 13, for such men, he's talking about false teachers, false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, Paul says, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So the devil uses people and false teachers who seem good, who are friends, who seem to want what's best for us, our co-workers who seem to have good advice, but in reality, the devil is using people around us to deceive us, to deceive us. And we can't go into all this, but he's a devious serpent. I call him a sneaky snake. And there are false teachers who are sneaky snakes. And they're all over social media. They're all over YouTube. And you listen and it sounds good and they may come from a big church and they may come from a godly heritage of other godly pastors. But if you listen to what they're saying, they're sneaky snakes. They're delightful servants, angels of lights. They they seem like servants of God, but they're actually tools in the hands of devil of the devil and he has deadly snares think about a snare a trap it looks good it's covered up with foliage you look like you can step on it and all of a sudden that bear claw has your leg and your bone snaps and you are caught that's what the devil wants to do and he has deceitful schemes he's scheming he's planning And he has a whole cadre of demons to work. And he has strategies. He's putting thought into this. How much thought do we put into counteracting him? How much thought do we put into living for God? Listen, we've got an enemy. We've got an adversary. And on top of that, number four, he's a liar. He's a liar who lies about the consequences of sin and God's goodness. He whispers, did God really say? He whispers, is God good in withholding this from you? Is God good? Is God just? He whispers these things. He's a liar. And then here's what happens. He lies to catch us. And then once he catches us in sin, once he tempts us and we give in, number five, he's the accuser. He's the accuser. This is the irony. This guy's not for you. He's against you. The second he's like, oh, I'm your friend. Come, come enjoy some sin. Come, come look a little longer. Come, go to the place you shouldn't go. 
Come, think the thoughts you shouldn't think. It will be good. And then the second you give in, he's, he's there in your ear saying, you filthy, dirty sinner. You're not worthy of Christ and his salvation. That's what he does. He's the accuser. He's, he's roaming the earth to tempt us. And then when we give in to sin, he zooms up to heaven to the throne of God and accuses us b- before God. But praise God, we have an ascended Lord who is an advocate. We have an advocate. He is the accuser. Uh, turn your Bibles to Revelation 12, 9 through 10. Revelation 12, 9 through 10. This is probably your, a key passage on everything I'm teaching you about who Satan is in relation to being our adversary. Revelation 12, 9 through 10. Practically every title and, and role in temptation is listed in Revelation 9 through 10. Let's look at what it says. And the great dragon, there he is, the adversary, was thrown down. Who's that dragon? The serpent of old, Genesis 3, who is called the devil, the slanderer, the accuser. That's what devil means, the accuser. Satan, the adversary. Devil, the accuser. And Satan, adversary, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ have come. For the accuser of the brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before God day and night. So there you get that same idea. Look in that passage. All this powerful words about who Satan is. And then we get the hope. Christ is greater. He throws him out of heaven. H.A. Ironside was a famous Bible expositor of days gone by, and he would address his students as young gentlemen. And whenever he came to this verse in the Bible, he would say, Young gentlemen, Satan is the accuser of the brethren. Let's leave the dirty work to him. In other words, let's not be the accusers. Of God's people. Let's be the advocate. And then finally, he is the ringleader. Uh, He is the ringleader who rebels with his army of demons against Christ. And ringleader is not biblical. You could use antichrist there. He is the antichrist who rebels. Here's the idea it's not just the devil, he's got a whole army. More than likely, you personally have never been tempted by the devil. He's probably more concerned in men and women in places of greater power, greater authority. But don't miss, he's got a whole army of demons that he dispatches. And they are even now in this very room. If we had spiritual eyes to see, we would be shocked at not only the presence of the risen, ascended Lord in our midst, but of Uh, demons around us and that's why paul says this in ephesians 6 put on the full armor of god so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil for our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against rulers 
against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. He just keeps piling it up. Why so much temptation? We've got an army of adversaries against us. Secondly, there's another reason so much temptation. You still have the ability to sin. Not only do you have an adversary in the devil, you've got the ability to sin in your own flesh. We've been reading James 1. It says, each one is tempted when he's carried away to entice by what? By his own lust in us. Turn your Bibles to Romans 7, 14 through 24. Romans 7, 14 through 24. This kind of encapsulates, this doesn't kind of, it encapsulates the struggle that is within us. We're going to read verses 14 through 24. So I want you to follow along in your Bibles, and I want you to count how many times you see in me. In me. How many times do you see that? Paul says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. Can you relate? For I am not practicing what I'd like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells what? In me. For I know that nothing dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, for the nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh for the willing is present in me but the doing of the good is not for the good that i want i do not do but i practice the very evil that i do not want but if i'm doing the very thing i do not want i am no longer doing it but sin which dwells in me i find i find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? In me is listed, at least in the New American Standard, eight times. Eight times. At first I thought it was six. I read it again. I found a seventh. Just now when I was just reading it, I found an eighth. In me. In me. There is the flesh that is in you. And it tempts you. It tempts you. You Say, Chris, what's the flesh? The flesh is everything in me that opposes God and God's purposes. And God's people. It's everything in me. And here's what I want you to remember about the flesh. And I'll keep bringing this up in this series. Listen to this. The flesh is happy for you to be spiritual. The flesh is fine with you being religious. The flesh won't mind if you read your Bible every day. The flesh 
will let you do anything surrounding God and spiritual things as long as you don't try to kill it. Do do you get what I'm saying? See, the flesh is like, yeah, go be spiritual. Yeah, go hang out with Christians. Yeah, profess to be a Christian, but let me have my way. Don't try to kill me. Listen, you try to kill that habitual sin and the flesh rises up. It rises up and it will resist. But greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Why so much temptation? You have an adversary in the devil. You have the ability to still sin. We have the Holy Spirit. We can say no to sin, but we still have a sinful fallen nature. Number three, you are still attracted to selfish pleasure. You are still attracted to selfish pleasure. What is that? That's the world. So 1 John 2, 15 through 16. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. I gave you a chart there to show you these three aspects are where we are so often tempted by the world around us, man, by the eyes of what we see. And we live in a day and age where we walk around with this source of temptation in our pocket, in front of our face all the time. And it is geared by the world to bring in front of your eyes and to entice your flesh and to get you to boast in your in in who you are and what you know and who you follow it's all there and obviously i'm carrying one while i'm teaching it's not that you can't have a phone but you've got to understand what it's doing and, and, and it's the world in your pocket and it's how eve fell and it's how jesus was tempted and thank god where eve failed Christ was victorious in the wilderness. Same temptations, and he is our victor. And that is good news. Listen, the world, we we forget about the world. How, How does the world, how does living in the world tempt us? Let me give you some examples. A woman's trying to stop smoking and gets transferred into an office place where everybody else smokes. A married man meets an old girlfriend and begins to doubt that maybe he married the wrong person. A young person chooses to be a homosexual due to being violated at a young age by an adult. Anyone trying to overcome sexual immorality is constantly bombarded by sexual messages and opportunities in culture and entertainment. And it's not just a struggle of sinful actions. It can be mental fantasies. It all begins with a battle of the mind. What is it that you are putting in? Garbage in is garbage out. And that's true in your temptations. Why is there so much temptation? We have an enemy above us, the devil. 
We have the enemy within us, the flesh, and we have the enemy around us, the world. Is it any wonder that we, we ne- that we ever never not sin, right? But here's the question I want to end with. And it begs the question. Why does God allow so much temptation? Why doesn't he just get rid of Satan? He's going to. He's, he's victorious over him on the cross and, and he's going to come back. But it's been 2,000 years. Why, what, what in the world? Why doesn't he just kill the devil? Why doesn't he just remove our sin nature? He declared us righteous. Why can't he just remove our sin nature? One day he will. Why not now? And then what about the world? He's going to come and judge the world and transform it. Why do he have to break that up into two comings? Why does God allow so much temptation? Well, I can't answer all of those questions. But let me give you four reasons. Four biblical reasons. Number one, to test our loyalty. He wants to test our loyalty. Listen, this earth is a battlefield. Your heart is a battlefield. Your home is a battlefield. And there is a war raging, and God allows temptation to test the loyalty of His people. We just got done going through Genesis 22 upstairs in, 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 in preaching. We preached through Genesis 22. Genesis 22.1 says, It came about after these things that God tested Abraham. And said to him, Abraham. And he said, here am I. And what does he say to Abraham? Take Isaac, your only child, your beloved child, the son of promise, my gift to you, and sacrifice him. And when Abraham, by faith, did that, in Genesis twenty-two twelve, God says, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. As we think about your besetting sin in this series, let me encourage you to name it your Isaac. Because often what tempts us to sin is not evil in itself. Isaac wasn't sinful. Isaac was a gift from God. But Abraham was tempted to take God's gift and turn it into an idol. And God says, do you love me or do you love my gifts? Do you love me or do you love your spouse? Do you love me or do you love your job? Do you love me or do you love your dreams and your desires, your relationships, your, your physical home, your car, whatever it is. See, we're tempted to turn these things into gods and to grab them and hold them. And we're tempted to worship them instead of worshiping God. And so he allows this to test us. But be assured, be assured, that every temptation is an opportunity to be tested by God, but He never tempts us. He's not trying to get us to sin. He's trying to reveal what's already in our hearts. He knew Abraham loved him more than Isaac, and he put him to the test. 
James 1.13, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted of God. This isn't God's problem. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Secondly, understand this about temptation. Only when we give in does temptation become sin. Only when you give in. You say, Chris, I'm tempted all the time. I must be ungodly. No, you might be very godly. That's why you're tempted all the time. The temptation isn't the sin. It's giving in. After all, Jesus himself was tempted in all ways like us. But what's the good news about Jesus? He never gave in. I always like what Martin Luther said, that you you can't help but have birds land on your head and in your hair, but you can keep them from making a nest in your hair. Okay? You can't make, you can't stop temptation coming, but you can keep it from becoming an habitual habit, an habitual sin. What's the difference between God's testing and the devil's tempting? Well, God tests us to prove our love for him, So he can affirm us, okay? So he can affirm us. But Satan tempts us to disprove our love so that he can accuse us. So it's the motive. It's the motive. God tests us to to bring out the best in us. Satan tempts us to bring out the worst. So never attribute to God evil motives. Secondly, to transform our character. To transform our character. James says the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Temptation becomes God's magnifying glass. It shows us how much God has done in our hearts and how much he has yet to do in our hearts. Temptation is to It's a workout. To strengthen your muscles in loving God so that you get into the habit of saying no to sin and yes to God. You see, God tests us to reveal what is in our hearts. And Satan tempts us to condemn us. So the motives are different. God God wants to test and reveal I'm doing a work in you. Satan wants to test and condemn us as unworthy and unfit to be God's people. It's a difference in motive. It's a motive. And then thirdly, God allows so much temptation to transfer our dependence. To transfer our dependence from ourselves to God himself. You ever been trucking along in your Christian life and thinking, you know what? I'm doing pretty good. I'm doing pretty good. I'm loving God. I'm resisting sin. Glad I'm not like those other Christians, the weak, tempted ones. I'm doing pretty good. God's actually lucky to have me on his team. And then what happens? We get tempted and we sin. 
and we fall on our faces and we're embarrassed and we're caught and we're guilt-ridden and it becomes a habit and all of a sudden we're like, I'm not all that again. I need him. I need him. This is what happened to the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12. Because of the surpassing greatness of revelations, he, got, he actually was taken up into the third heaven. He saw things that he never wrote about and he never talked about. But so he wouldn't get a big head about it, so that he wouldn't think he was all that. There was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that, he might, that it might leave me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. For when I am weak, then I am strong. God allows temptation so that we are not dependent on ourselves, but we are dependent on him. Are you with me? Temptation is a constant reminder to depend on God and His grace and not ourselves or our own resources. You say, Chris, this temptation just comes and comes and comes. I wish it would go away. And God says, no, my grace is sufficient for you. This temptation reminds you, you need me. You need me. Every hour, I need thee. That's the idea. And then finally, to treasure our triune God. Temptation is a reminder to treasure our triune God. There's these little parables in Matthew that highlight this point. Matthew 13, 44 says this, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field which a man found and hid again, and from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Then Jesus says, and again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had to buy it. What's the idea? The gospel is the greatest treasure and brings the greatest satisfaction in life. And when you see Christ for who He is, you will sell all to treasure Him. Now, here's what temptation does. Temptation comes along and says, See this? See this sin? It will bring you satisfaction. See this sin? This is what you need right now to feel good about yourself. This Sin is your identity. Embrace it. It's what you need. It's the joy. It's the value. It's what makes life worth living. Go for it. And God allows that to remind you that whatever that sin is, Christ is a greater treasure. Christ is of greater value. Christ is of greater satisfaction. Basically, when we give in to habitual sin, and really any sin, what we're saying to God is, I love this sin more than my Savior. I love this sin 
because it brings me greater joy than my walk with Christ. And so Christ, the Lord and Christ, they, they allow this to remind us what is of greatest value. So I end today with this. Ultimately, temptation can bring greater glory to God as we depend on Him and greater grace in our lives as we seek in my weakness to claim His strength. Is that encouraging? You know why there's so much temptation? The enemy is pervasive, but God is purposeful. He's got a purpose. And His purpose and His grace is sufficient to say no. We're going to see how to do it in the weeks to come. Amen? Let's pray. Father, that's a lot to take in. We, we have an enemy that's all around us. I, Lord, I'm, I'm humbled going into this. I need this. I have besetting sins. I have temptations that I can give into and do give into. I can be in this downward spiral, but I can be set free. And I pray if there's anyone here that is in despair, anyone here who is beginning to take that downward spiral, that what we've seen this morning would wake us up to the enemy above us, within us, around us, and to God's good purposes. God has a greater purpose. And Christ is of greater worth than that besetting sin. Lord, let there be victory and let it begin here and now. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.